Welcome to the Black Heels and Tractor Wheels podcast, where we are sharing stories from a range of women from around New Zealand. For nearly a century, Rural Women New Zealand has been dedicated to strengthening and supporting women and children to become empowered members of their communities. We hope that by hearing these stories from inspiring women all around the country, you'll feel inspired yourself. We're your hosts, Emma Higgins and Claire Williamson, and we'd love for you to join and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss our rural stories. Tia, you have just won the Woman of Influence Award for the inaugural category of primary industries. And we're going to talk about that as we delve through um, a bit of a history of your journey and how you got to there. But first question for you is, have you always been rural? Have you always been a a bit of a girl from the land or otherwise? Uh, Yeah, I guess I'm definitely a country girl. I was born in a little town called Balclutha in South Otago and then raised in an even smaller town called Milton. And although we grew up on State Highway 1 our whole lives, it's a pretty country village. And so we kind of travelled around in the sharing industry all over New Zealand as kids with mum and dad and yeah, just kind of lived that farm life without actually being farm kids, I suppose. Yeah, no, we, we love our country living, absolutely. That's awesome. And so how did you, so you grew up in the country and you lived a bit of the farm life. How did you go from there to, to ultimately being in this position where you, you just won this award? I've actually been asking myself that question all week, to be honest. I guess just a lot of hard work. I mean, I'm not going to say I've been an angel my whole life, but I've, I've worked really hard to try and encourage people and try and be supportive of people and to try and put my best foot forward through with everything that I've done. I guess having that country upbringing of get up, get to work and just do what needs to be done has really helped with that as well. So all of that good work ethic that I learned in the sharing industries, you know, getting up before the sunshine and, and you know, if my grandfather used to say, if you're up after the sun, then you're already late you know so you're going to be running late all day so I guess we've kind of lived with that instilled with us as well all our lives and that's probably been the biggest pusher to get me to the situation where I was awarded this woman of influence awards yeah I'm still I'm still buzzing still pitching yourself I love that so we hear that you have had quite a journey into wool handling and that you've actually represented Aotearoa and wool handling. I know actually Emma and I both know how hard this is, especially being on the end of a broom all day. Um, I did a little bit when I left school, but I am definitely in no sort of scenario like you are. Can you tell us about how you got into wool handling and into sharing, because I understand your parents were involved, and then what it was like to compete? Because I think that would be really neat for our listeners here. Okay, so I was, you know, I was born and raised in the shearing industry when I was young. My parents, they travelled around between Milton, Gisborne, Tikawiti and the King Country. And then we would come here to Coromandel in the downtime and, and kind of relax a little bit. And I guess it was just a natural progression for us. And so I started working school holidays when I was about 11 years old and just doing little bits for my Uncle Bill. And I was getting paid $8.30 an hour and just thought I was absolutely raking it in. You know, this is back in 19, do I really want to say this, 1994. I didn't want to be a wall handler. Like it was something that I just wanted to do for the school holidays to help myself save some money. I wanted to be a lawyer. 
that was kind of my real passionate career path when I was at school. And then I guess I got to an age, that 15, 16 sort of an age where the money started getting really good and you kind of understood what you could do with all of this hardworking money and all of the places you could go and see. And so um, at 16, I decided school wasn't for me and the school decided they didn't want me back either. And off I went with my broom and and then I competed for the first time when I was 12 and I won a prize for being the youngest ever competitor that, at that competition. And I guess that kind of got me hooked. It was a pair of shoes from the warehouse, but you know, there's nothing like getting a prize in front of 150 people for something you didn't expect to get you hooked and, and get you the bug for competing. So that was probably the starting of that for me as well. And my mum and my sister and my grandfather and his brothers competed throughout the years. My grandfather's brother, George, was the very first winner of the Golden Shares back in 19, I want to say it's 1960, 1967. My sister's in the background, she knows. <laughs> 1967, George Porto won the very first um, Golden Shares. And so it was kind of, as a family, it was something to strive for really, to, to be as good as our grandparents were were and to be able to represent our family name as well as they did in, in such a widely renowned um, rural sport in New Zealand. Then I got to represent New Zealand. That is <laughs> that amazing. Cool. Can you tell yeah. us about the representing New Zealand part? So so tell us about yeah. how that felt when you were you were there, you obviously are representing the nation just how did that how did that feel to you what was that experience like yeah that was insane at the time I was the youngest person to win that so I you know went over to Australia very very green had no idea what I was doing and I was really lucky at that time to have the support of a man called Bill Greenshields who'd kind of been in the sheds with my mum so he came with me to that one and then I followed on to meet up um, at the Nationals with a really lovely lady called Veronica Goss, who was like a mentor mum to me. So I was shocked. I remember when I first won, when they called out my name and my dad was in the crowd and he just ran from the back of the hall all the way up to the stage and almost bear tackled me in front of everyone. He'd had a few beers while he was celebrating watching the competing. So yeah, he was over the moon and my uncle was still a sponsor there, my grandfather's brother. So he got to award me with that award of winning the New Zealand Warhammer of the Year title as well. So yeah, that was probably one of the pinnacle moments of my career winning that that title it was the first open competition that I'd competed in and made a final win so yeah there was lots of firsts that day and it was just um there's nothing like it and then when we got to come back to New Zealand and compete at the Golden Shears Ronnie and I you know I've, I'd been to the Golden Shears as a kid and I'd sat on the sidelines and watched the New Zealand team and to just be standing there on the stage with the national anthem being sung standing next to one of the people that you idolized who was you know your mentor and yeah I guess it's just there's no feeling like it and I mean the second time was exactly the same it was all still as overwhelming as it was the first time and pride just doesn't really go away I still walk around with my blazer on every now and then and, and pretend like we're away to a world circuit or something like that yeah oh my gosh I just honestly this is amazing I love this I love and I love that you've really described the feeling of being there which is epic right <laughs> down to your dad's bear tackling you I'm going to ask a bit more of a question slightly more recent question so as I understand it um, in 2020 when the level four lockdown hit there was a lot of people in the contracting particularly in an agriculture industry and we did support some of them as well as rural women New Zealand that was sort of worried about their income worried about how that was going to work and I understand that you provided a bit of a solution and some really special support to them so can you tell us a little bit a little bit about Takitoru Woolshed Services? Yeah, yeah. Takitoru Woolshed Services uh, that yeah. was a bit of a brainchild of mine a few years ago when it um, Oh, okay, yes. 
Awesome. Yeah, so so that started off as um, wanting to be in the training scheme of things. There was already a big company going at the moment at that stage called Tetra, and I just wanted to be able to supply some training to the smaller areas that weren't kind of being focused on as much the contractors that only had one crew locally in our area. And so, yeah, I just kind of sat down and started putting a few ideas on paper, which turned out to be this booklet of training for wool handlers from a level two to a level four which kind of progressed into helping others set up other training regimes and things like that so it's been a really positive movement and then when the um, COVID hit we got to use that as I've kind of put it out there online and people used it just to kind of keep them occupied during the start of the lockdown when we didn't know what was happening and that sort of stuff um, just to help with a bit of updated training during the lockdowns and then we kind of progressed into putting up a full-on Facebook page of having training opportunities putting videos of sharing and wall handling up helping people in the industry access like COVID wage subsidies and things like that because you know it was just such a huge thing that nobody really understood on those first few days like I had no idea what I was doing either but Google works and and the good old phone calls to some good friends really helps and and so we managed to put together a really good program for people to be able to just send us a message on Facebook and then we'd send them all the information about the wage subsidies and what they were entitled to, um, how they could choose whether or not they were safe to go to work and whether or not it was safe for contractors to keep working in the lockdowns and things like that. We had some really good support from local contractors, Jock Martin, um, he's in Lawrence, so he was doing a lot of work behind the scenes to ensure that all the primary industries were being really well looked after in the South Otago region. And so he was keeping us really well updated with heaps of information from the government and things like that. And we had the Sharing Contractors Association who were also keeping us really well updated and being very supportive of the people who were losing their jobs or who were being kicked out of communal living situations and sharing quarters and things because everybody was just kind of freaking out and didn't know where to, what to do and so yeah we we had some really good support and I guess that's just the power of technology eh? having a Facebook page where you can just call on a few friends and say send us your info as much as you can and we'll just keep posting it and hope that somebody sees something that's helpful and yeah we managed to reach out to quite a few people so it was really really cool and that went on for a couple of years. You spoke a lot about how you had a lot of support from various people within the industry or within your area that helped you with that particular venture. Throughout your whole career, you've you've obviously, you're an absolute legend at wool handling and you're a small business owner. Have you had champions and mentors who have helped you to really open doors and to get you, I guess, the lead-in that you needed um, or perhaps just even supporting you through those, those early stages of your wool handling career? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. There's so, so many people. I mean, we're working with different people every day, but um, my biggest influences in the start would have been my mum and my sister, most definitely. They were very passionate about the wool handling thing. And when I didn't really want to be there, they held my hand and taught me the way so that people wouldn't yell at me. And and then I got to work with um, really top level wool handlers, Joanne Kumiro, Sharon Lawton, Gina Nathan, when I was young working um, in Peter and Elsie Lyons crew down in central Otago. And so they were really, really good for me in that competitive scene um, teaching me the ropes and and kind of coaching me along in those earlier years yeah they were great in the earlier years once I started getting up there with them and started to beat them there's not so much um, coaching that goes on after that but um, definitely those three ladies and I mean Peter and Elsie Lyon I worked for them for 20 years doing prelim seasons and I grew from being a 16 year old know-it-all had the answer for everything but knew absolutely nothing and then progressing into being a, a lead 
shared hand for them within probably a 10-year space. And then over the next 10 years, I got to, I set my wool classing stencil. And so have spent the next 10 years classing sheds um, on a stay-out run that they that they contract. And so we've been really lucky that all of our wool that I class during the wintertime is all contracted to an amazing company in Italy called Radar. And so they make um, top uh, Italian fabric suiting fabrics, if that makes sense. And then it gets sent to all of the big uh, suit makers to be made into suits and, and that sort of stuff. So yeah, I've been really, really blessed over the career to have just lots of people who have just, I don't know, I guess they all have seen a wee bit of a spark or they've seen a wee bit of something in me and they've all kind of pushed me along and kept urging and kept urging to keep growing. And then um, in the whānau water work that I started two years ago, that was the dream trial of a lovely leader called, uh, lady called Serena Lighters from down in Tokanui, like way down the bottom of the south. She's actually from Dannyburg but lives down there now. And um, she she had this dream to have an online network for sharing and wool handling people to be able to access services outside of hours. So things like holistic healing services, um, mental health services, physios, dentists, those sorts of things. And so she came to my house one day and asked me if I'd be interested. And then a couple of months later, the COVID hit. And so it was kind of like fast tracked into um, being a COVID response program, as well as being a networking program for agricultural industries so yeah that's how that all started and then it kind of progressed into training and wānangering and 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 so much more than I kind of imagined but yeah it's, it's been a real amazing journey oh my goodness Tia you have your fingers in so many pies it's just incredible and I can see that the thread that is weaving through all of the stuff you do links back into community really closely and here at Rural Women New Zealand and in the work that we do it's really focused on community and we are always interested in what community means to people um, what they enjoy most about living rurally what they love about being involved with that community and how that helps what they do day to day so can you tell us a little bit about your community oh in Milton we have an amazing community we um we're not we're not a family but we're family you know and that's probably the thing about rural communities is uh particularly Maori families in the South Island who aren't from there you know we seem to kind of all mold in together and we we have the same sorts of dreams and hopes and aspirations and and so for me I grew up in Milton and most of the people that I grew up with are still there and they're raising their kids now. And, and so we've all kind of been together through all of these things. And so, you know, our, our dreams went from what we wanted 10 or 15 years ago. And, you know, we all pushed for our dreams to come true to now what's best for our kids and the kids that are surrounding them. You know, we want to make sure that our kids and their friends don't have to not so much struggle, but not have to really um, feel the pains of, of life as much as I guess we did in the days when people didn't really understand about traumatic experiences and things like that and you know having a lack of and poverty and, and all of that sort of stuff so I guess a lot of our community-minded stuff is about encourage, encouraging and educating kids how to be sustainable how to grow a garden how to get up and go to work how to just love each other or be and be honest with each other you know if you don't love each other just say it don't beat around the bush and don't play games on Facebook and don't be bullies you know just just trying to teach them that that kindness can go a really really long way in the world and being a good human and having a smile on your face and 
just saying hello can go a long way for somebody's day. And I guess that's the best thing about growing up rurally. I know that when I go to the city, there's not a lot of that smiling situation that goes on. You know, you walk past people in the street and they don't even look you in the eye. Whereas if you're in the country, you probably take you a good hour to walk the two Ks up the main road because you've got to stop and talk to every second person along the way. I love that. And I just, it sounds like you were just creating a village of awesome humans. And that just makes me so happy and so inspired to hear about as well, particularly as I sit here with my my youngest as well. So we've, we've all got a role to play, don't we, in shaping the next generation. And you are just absolutely smashing it. And so the question I have for you, Tia, is of all the things that you're involved with and for your career to date, what are you the most proud of? Um, professionally, I'd say one of the highlights would be that first win um, of an open title and that first representation of New Zealand. Um, God, there's just, it's been such a whirlwind the last few years. I, I just don't even know. There's been so many proud moments. Um, I don't think anything can outshine the moments of being a mum, I guess. I've got a 19-year-old son who has done amazing things and is an amazing human. And I guess so every single time that I look at him, it's a proud moment for me. You know, every time I hear him speak or, you know, see him do his his kapahaka, his mauraku, just it's all really proud moments. And um, I guess this woman of influence thing, it's blown my mind. I had I was excited to be nominated for it. You know, I was like that was winning for me. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get nominated for this award. Didn't even know if I was going to make the finals, but that was so exciting. And so um, winning and being here at home and I was had family around me and just, yeah, that was a pretty special moment too, yeah. That's awesome. I love that you, ref- you refer to your son as such an amazing achievement and, and the things that he does. It's, that's really, really, really awesome. I think one of the things that we often find when we speak to women on this podcast is that they give so much of themselves in many different areas of, of their lives. A lot of them are mothers and also run businesses or um, help communities and and you do all of those things in terms of looking after Tia what do you do to make sure that you're the best version of yourself day to day and that you can give to those different places and also that you get as well back to yourself oh gosh uh, I do a lot of meditating uh, that's just been something that I've picked up over the last couple of years consciously meditating so now I know what I'm doing when I'm sitting in the daydreams I like to I've just picked up pedal boarding we've since we've moved here to the Coromandel we're hoping to start up a pedal board and kayak hire business here with my son and so I've this morning stood up on the pedal board for the first time so that was an achievement and I just I just like to walk I like to listen to music I love singing I'll sing at the top of my lungs whenever I can and just hanging out hanging out with my son we do lots of just chilling together especially now that we're up here in the bush together Mm. Yeah, so um, yeah, just lots of relaxing. I guess um, being in the sharing sheds, I used to just love being in the environment and and I didn't really need a lot of downtime with that because the people were really cool and you'd have lots of different um, energies to kind of keep you balanced all day and you'd be out in nature. So it, it wasn't really a thing for me until I started working in an office and being in the four walls and then I really kind of needed that outside release, I guess, just to kind of be sitting with myself and yeah, just having those moments for me, really. Lots of good coffee. Yeah, I mean to that. <laughs> and and I genuinely hope that I'm in a similar position where 
when my son's 19, he wants to hang out and chill with me too, because I think that's such an awesome comment to make about your downtime. You said yourself, Tia, that the last few years have been such a whirlwind. And you just mentioned that we've we've gone, we've in your journey, you've gone from down south. Now we're up in Kennedy's Bay and the Coromandel. And so what will the next 12 months, do you think, hold for you? Oh my gosh, the dreams are endless. So the big the big plan of being here is to kind of just really get reconnected to who I am and where I come from. Um, all of these people on the wall behind me, they're all of my um, grandparents and my aunts and uncles who have passed and who um, have kind of paved the way for us here in Kennedy Bay. And so I guess um, being down in Milton and Tokomairero, we had a good family unit down there, but it's just that real connection to who we are as, as a Māori people, as a hapu, as an iwi, um, and then really kind of trying to promote good, healthy living. Um, I'd really love to continue on with the agricultural wānanga up here if we can find a good space and, and some good people to help support the cause. There's lots of fishing boats and lots of forestry work, and there is a few... Um, sheep around the place so there's definitely no shortage of agricultural work around here and just to really share you know what a slice of paradise that is up here and that people just you know there's so much opportunity that I guess there's that a lot of people aren't aware of yet that are from here they just don't I don't know if they just don't see the beauty of this place like how we see it because we're not from here but I guess um I want to learn about the rungoa, I want to learn about what grows good here, I want to learn about the maramataka and the fishing and and um, all of that stuff that we were slowly starting to integrate into our programs in the South Island, but I couldn't teach myself because I hadn't had the, the knowledge or the learnings from, from the people who sit here and, and do it every day. So I guess for me it's, it's it'll be a year of growth and learning and hopefully... Um, a positive year of starting up a, another small business of paddleboard and kayak kaya locally and getting a few of the rangatahi around here involved with that and, and opening up those sort of tourism and hospitality doors as well as the agricultural industry doors as well. I can see that everywhere you go, you create a new community, which is pretty special. It is, it's fantastic. Listening to you talk about reconnecting with the, the land, um, it's just it's so similar to the way that I feel about where I grew up. And I, I, I grew up in a, a, a really small place um, on the West Coast in Kafia. And every time I go back there, I feel connected back to, back to the land, even though my people are officially not from there. It's, um, it's a really special place. So I totally get what you're trying to do and what you're trying to bring forth. So that's beautiful. I'm going to ask a little bit of a bonus question. Uh, you are someone who has spent a long time in our beautiful wool industry here in New Zealand. And I am very passionate about wool. Um, and I know that we are starting to make some headway in selling that beautiful fiber out to the world and showing them, you know, what great properties it has. And you are one of those top people who organize all of our beautiful fibers into the great like the special places that they're meant to go. So I actually would really love to hear your thoughts on where the wool industry might go and how we can keep supporting it heading forward because it's it's a it's a renewable fibre. We need more of those um, in our world. So your thoughts on that would be fabulous. Mm, this is a huge question. The wool industry is an amazing industry for a start. I mean, it 
the amount of jobs that it creates just in this little country from the harvesting, the farming, the manufacturing, this testing, all of the chain that it goes through, it definitely is a huge employer in this country. And I think that that's something that's not uh, recognised enough. You know, people just think of shearers and wool handlers as being, and I, I probably shouldn't say it, but I'm going to say it, they think of us as being second-class citizens. You know, they there has been a lot of times where I've been out with shearing mates and wool handling mates and the treatment that they get from people in public has been really, really sad. And, you know, they're actually really wealthy people, but they don't need to walk around showing off their wealth. They they know that they're hardworking people. They know that they're good people. And just because they wear socks and jandals and a beanie under the unbrushed, over the unbrushed hair doesn't make them bad people. So that's kind of one thing. And But the wool industry, I mean, the best we can do is just keep buying wool, um, keep promoting that it's not this horrible industry that Peter's making it to be. You know, if you've got shearers on your shed, you know, get out there, take some videos, take some videos when you get mustering the sheep, show that show where they really truly come from and the life that they really truly live in New Zealand, help promote all of the good things that the wool does for the world, you know, like simple things that that could be fixed, oil spills and things like that, that could, you know, put a big old woolen netting out there and soak up all the oil, you know, those sorts of things. Those really grassroots ideas that people had back in the 1950s and 60s that actually made wool great is the same thing that will probably bring them back this year. It's just that we have to have a little bit more PC around it and we have to have to make it a little bit less itchy because people are precious. Yeah, just really encouraging and promoting it. Like at the moment, one of my dreams is to go and here we go again with the dreams <laughs> is to just get like eye clips and locks from the merino wool or the crossbred wool and just make, you know, 100% pure woolen duvets. And it would be so inexpensive and you could literally make those, you know, you'd buy a bale of a bale of locks for probably 800 bucks or something and you could make I don't know 50 blankets maybe 60 blankets out of it and you imagine if you rocked up to a homeless shelter with 50 or 60 woolen blankets how many people would be so so grateful for that and it was at, it was at the most minimal cost and then you know just little things like that that can really help promote the industry. I mean, it's really expensive to buy wool, so that's probably one of the bigger things. So obviously, there'll have to be a little bit of promotion around what the processes of the wool are, because people think it just goes from a sheep's back to a jersey, and then they charge you 200 bucks for the jersey, and that's just not the case. So, you know, just maybe a little bit more education around what really happens, I guess. I've I'm got just, an opinion about everything, I tell you. <laughs> I love this. And just your first comments around the perception of sharers is absolutely mind-blowing because they are literally the hardest working people I think out there in that agricultural sense. I'd probably put my fencing contractors up there as well particularly those that work in the steep stuff and sharers oh my god absolutely incredible so it just blows my mind that that is still a real thing. But I just want to say thank you for your time. It has just been so wonderful hearing about all these amazing ideas that you have, hearing about all the influences that you have in different communities. And I think to really sum it up, there was a really beautiful quote that was made by um, the, the judges when you, were, when you obviously won the, the Primary Influence Awards. And it was... She is brave, she is fearless, she is utterly resolute. 
about supporting Fano to navigate better futures for them and their Mokapuna. And I just think that is the most beautiful way to sum up our conversation. So thank you. Rural Women New Zealand is a community of like-minded women who are doing amazing things in their respective regions and communities. This podcast celebrates the achievements, successes and stories of our rural women, which are also the foundations for our organisation's rich history. We want you to be part of our future story. So please join us by clicking on the link in the show notes and we look forward to welcoming you into the fold.